All right. Well, I'd like to be able to say now we're going to go into a bit of a lighter sermon, but we probably won't because uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew and, and uh, Jesus is talking about a, a topic which is kind of heavy. But uh, one of the things I've most appreciated over the years of, of being a pastor is that I've really enjoyed the congregations that, that I've been privileged to pastor. I've been uh, most often in churches that tend toward, I've only pastored two churches. Uh, one was for 14 years and uh, we've just been here 10 years uh, last month here at IBCD. And, uh, but both churches tended to be a bit of a younger demographic. Uh, when I first started out, I was 29, so I was one of the younger uh, in the demographic. They've always been churches with, uh, with some, with, though, with some you know, older folks to kind of add some wisdom and, and perspective into things. Now I'm one of those older folks. Uh, I've always loved university students because I think I had such a great experience myself uh, with my university and their relationship with the local church. It was really great. And uh, I've always wanted to duplicate that wonderful experience that I had for others uh, at the church. But one of the most wonderful populations to have in the church, yet also one of the most frustrating and exhausting, can be children. And I've always been in churches that have lots of children. And it's funny when you go, when you visit churches, especially uh, you know, when you're uh, a young pastoral candidate, there's two, there's two types of churches that will, will hire someone who's just out of seminary and uh, has very little experience. And, and usually they're older dying churches because all they can afford is what this you know, young whippersnapper is going to be. So then you have these, I had a lot of college friends who had very strange first pastoral experiences where they were basically pastoring people who were their parents and grandparents' age only. There was no one younger than them. And, they, and if, if they brought kids, if they had a young family with kids, their kids were the only kids in the church. And people often will say, oh, we wish we had a church with more kids. But then you have a church with a lot of kids, and you'll find out that, yeah, everyone loves a church with a lot of kids, but it's very difficult finding people who want to invest time in the kids. Uh, finding Sunday school teachers, finding, which is the main. If you have a church with a lot of kids, finding people who are willing to teach Sunday school and to be part of the nursery and things like that, take care of the kids, is the hardest thing to find. And it's universal. It's not just like any one particular culture or any one thing. It's just kind of universal. And yet, children are probably the biggest blessing and the biggest responsibility that a church is given to them by God. You know, this is the next generation of faith. And the experience they have in the church that they grow up in is going to lay the foundation of how they progress with their faith through the rest of their life. And most kids at some point will kind of grow up and kind of do their own thing for a while, even pastor kids. But if we lay that foundation of trust and of love and of hope, then oftentimes they'll come back because it's coming back to a good place, a solid place. And if I honestly think that if Jesus were here and we said, okay, we only have the resources to do one of two things, preach to the adults or teach the kids, I think Jesus, without hesitation, would say, if you only have the resources to do one or the other, then teach the kids. Because they're the next generation that you're building up for the future. And as I've gotten older, I find that watching kids is kind of entertaining. It's kind of bittersweet sometimes. Especially when they're around that age of two to four years old. Because that's when you see their personalities begin to develop. And you can pretty much tell, and I've, told, I've said this before, you can pretty much tell what kind of adult they're going to be based on what kind of kid they are. You know, this guy is going to be trouble at a meeting. You just know it, you know? 
if he gets on any kind of, if he, <laughs> if he gets on church, uh, like an administration team, or this guy becomes somewhat of, of a power person in, a, in any kind of thing, uh, we're in trouble. Unless we train him well. You know, and then you got the ones that are just, you know, they just sort of wear their emotions out there on their sleeve. You know, and I think this is kind of the interesting thing about kids, is that they're basically just like us. Except that we've learned how to mask certain emotions. You know, we've learned that it's not sociably okay to, to, to cry in public, in general, or to be mad when someone gets something that we don't have. And yet, still as adults, you know, when our best friend decides to kind of set us aside to do something with another person, as an adult, we, 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 we go through our heads, we go, well, that, that, that's okay, it's okay for my best friend to have another friend. It's okay that I wasn't invited. I'm old enough to deal with this. But we feel it, don't we? It's just like we're little kids. It hasn't really changed that much. And then, I, you know, then you can see the ones who are just going to be goofs their whole life, and they're going to be laughing and funny, and they're just those high-energy people. These are like the athletes and entertainers, you know, and then there's those who are just kind of in their own little world, just sweetness personified. And, uh, and they're the adults that, quite frankly, are going to get knocked down a lot in life, but they'll get back up. But they're too kind to really do much in, in response. And at the end, they'll be the ones that are deeply beloved, but they'll go through some hard times because they're not ones to defend themselves. And you can see all this right in there when they're about two to four years old. You can just kind of look and go, this is in general what type of person this is going to be. And Jesus, when he talks about children, he doesn't talk about them very often, but when he does, it's, it's pretty intense. And Matthew in particular has a very intense passage where Jesus talks about children. And so let's read through this and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down. So this is Matthew chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to be reading 18 through uh, 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked. So this is, this is at the, as the disciples are getting ready for their last journey towards Jerusalem. They're in Galilee. And it says, at this time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a large millstone tied around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter, enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you, they're angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is an interesting passage because Jesus says a lot of things just kind of in flyby mode. He, just, he, he drops a lot of these little interesting nuggets within this that... that the theologian in me wants him to stop and explain a little bit further. Well, what about that? And some of it really doesn't have anything to do with the topic he, he's going on here. And we'll, we'll discuss some of those. 
But this passage starts with the disciples coming to Jesus with a very man-centered question when they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now make it be clear to understand the disciples' point of view here. They, they don't even bother to make it, you know, clarify it because to them it's a no-brainer. The question really is, who's the greatest man in the kingdom of heaven? That's what they're really asking. And they're looking at themselves. Which one of us is the greatest man in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds by picking a person within the population who has even fewer rights than a woman in their time. A woman had some rights, not a lot of rights, but she had some rights. But children had no rights. Children could be in a situation where they were being abused or used or beaten or cursed. There was no recourse for a child. There was no child protective services. There were no, you know, Yuganomt or anything like that to help them out. There was no particular programs for kids. It was all based upon the family or societal pressure that would maybe change how a child is being abused or hurt. But there was no, there was no help. There was no outside. They were as vulnerable as a person could be in that population. And so just keep that in mind. That that's the type of person that Jesus pulls up and he begins to talk about what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so he answers this question with kind of a spiritual answer at first. He says, you know, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. This spiritual response probably isn't a big surprise to most of you. I mean, if you've been in church for a little while, or you've read the Bible a little bit, you, and you see this a lot in the Old Testament, God has a heart for the underdog. He has a heart for the one that society has pretty much said, you know, they're useless. And God builds up the underdog. You know, he very often, the, the system that he sets in place is very firstborn oriented, and most of the things do happen with the firstborn. But the stories of interest in the Bible are usually the, the younger ones, like Joseph out of the Old Testament, the youngest of Jacob's children. Uh, the story of, of Esau and Jacob. Jacob was the younger one. Uh, you see this throughout the scriptures, that there's this young, Moses was younger than Aaron. You know, that God would choose these, these people who were outside the norm. Because he loves the underdog, Gideon. He was the, the, of the smallest family, the least important family in the smallest tribe. You know, and he was the least member of that least family. God likes to use that. Because there's a kind of vulnerability there that God has a heart for. God has a heart for the people that, that really can't stand for themselves. He has a heart for the vulnerable. He has the heart for those that are completely left to another person's devices as to their own welfare. And so Jesus identifies with this kind of trust, and he identifies it himself when he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this welcomes me. There's a humility that is involved there that Jesus finds very, well, he identifies with. Jesus himself, in his, in his relationship with the Father, if you read through the New Testament, there's never a, a sense in the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, and admittedly, Jesus' relationship with the Father is a confusing one to it's not confusing, but it's a different one than, say, my biological relationship to my dad. But he never has anything, there's never any fear in Jesus' relationship with the Father. 
In fact, he says things like, you know, I don't do anything on my own. Everything I do, the Father shows me. He tells Philip, the disciple in the Gospel of John, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has a very strong sense of trust with the Father, even when he has to go through difficult times. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's asking that God would, that the Father could take this cup away from him, he's still in a place of trust. He trusts that if he has to go through this crucifixion, it's because the Father knows that this is the best thing. And so while Jesus in his humanity, no one wants to suffer the way that he suffered. He's not looking forward to that. And so he's like, if there's another way, let us do this. But at the end, he always comes back to, your will be done. Because he trusts that even if he has to go through this horrible crucifixion and torture, on the other side, there's going to be resurrection. So Jesus holds this innocence. He holds the trust of a child precious. And when we do that same thing, we are holding Christ precious. When we take that innocence, that vulnerability, and we nurture it and we protect it as a church, as individuals, as parents, as aunts and uncles, however it is that you're involved in the life of a child, when you hold that innocence and vulnerability as sacred, then you're holding those things also that Christ finds precious, sacred. You're holding the very things the Father finds precious, sacred. Which is why when Jesus takes a turn, it goes dark when he takes a turn in this passage. When you think about it, look what he says. He goes right from talking about, you know, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And then he goes and he gets pretty serious about stuff when he says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. And this is kind of a disturbing picture, isn't it? That's what he's saying. That's what it would look like, the millstone and thrown into the sea, descending into darkness and death. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Now, that's kind of an interesting kind of general you know, the things that cause the world to sin. And this is what's kind of, this is one of those passages you, you want him to explain more. He says, such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. One of the things that we kind of joke about uh, at IBCD uh, sometimes is, you know, you have different theologies and you have this, one of the theologies that's very prominent, as many of you know, is Calvinism. Calvinism is kind of this predestined idea. Everything is under the sovereignty of God. Everything is destined. Every plan, every bad, every good thing is destined. And then you have obviously some theological questions from that philosophy. And then the other side of it is everything is free will, which is called Arminianism. Everything is free will. And what you see in the Bible are, are, are passages like this where these two worlds collide and, and they leave you questions because he says of sin, such things must come. These aren't a surprise to God that, that there's sin in this fallen world. And it's part of a plan. There's some, these things must come. But woe to the one through whom they come. So it's almost as just Jesus is saying, these things are going to happen. But woe to the one who allows himself to be the one through whom they happen. And in that sense, you kind of have these worlds colliding. Is it Calvinism? Is it predestined? Is it free will? And I think the answer, and this is the frustrating thing for a lot of people, is yes. You know, in some kind of way, these things come to together, and the tension we feel is, yeah, there is, these things must come, but woe to the one through whom they come. He even says basically the same thing about Judas. 
You know, when he talks of it in the Last Supper, he makes kind of the same sort of reference. You know, this thing must happen, but woe to the one through whom they happen. And he's talking about Judas. Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man, even though the Son of Man is destined to be betrayed. It's like, it's a bit of a mind kind of, you know, because, you know, is this destined? Is this will? But what I get out of this is that Jesus does not very often show an utter lack of sympathy towards sinners very often. You think about it. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. In fact, people got upset with him for doing this. And if you work for the tax department in Germany, uh, it's not that you're necessarily a horrible person, but back in the time, if you were a tax collector, you were working for the Roman government. You were a traitor in the eyes of the people, the Jewish people, because you were working for the government. And Jesus, one of his disciples, Matthew, who wrote this, was a tax collector. And, and so he, he understands people's hatred towards tax collectors. The whole story of Zacchaeus, why Zacchaeus is, is, a, is a unique story is because he was a tax collector, and Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. And then you have the prostitutes, you know, obvious prostitutes are prostitutes. But he ate with them. And when he was confronted with a woman that was caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, of course the question is, where is the guy? But be that as it may, what does he do with her? Does he have her killed? Does he say, woe to you, you're better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean? No, when, when he does, he writes something in the dirt, in the, in, the, in the ground, and we don't know what it was. We wish we did, right? Because all these folks just start, who were angry and wanted to stone this woman to death start to walk away. And Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? She goes, they're not here. And he goes, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. A very gentle but you know, direct way of dealing with their sin. I, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. He acts the same way with a woman that he meets at a well who has multiple partners, and she starts arguing with him about who the Messiah is going to be, and he's just like, ah, oh, whatever. And then he begins speaking into her life, and she realizes this is the Messiah, and she runs back, and she's like, you know, and, and in the course of the conversation, it comes up that she's had multiple partners, and the person that she's living with isn't her husband. But she goes back to the village and she's the one that's kind of the, the, the harbinger of hope. And she says, this man said everything about my life. And Jesus is in that village for a while and a lot of people's lives are changed. And the thief on the cross who dies, he's being crucified because he's a criminal. And Jesus says, you know, today you'll see me in paradise. But when it comes to crimes against children, you don't see any of that sympathy. You don't see any of it. There's no understanding there's no, well, you know, we've all been there. He's just as, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, well, first of all, this is a woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the one through whom they come. And then about kids, if anyone causes them to sin, and go back up here, it's better they have this millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, let's be clear for some of you who are parents and maybe freaking out now that you've lost your temper occasionally with your kid. We're not talking about the occasional loss of temper as a parent. We're not talking about, you know, times when you may have said something that was emotionally hurtful. You should try and avoid those things. And it's, it's a good thing to apologize to your children when you, when you harm them. I have two grown children. I know what it's like to raise kids. But we're talking about people that have that have really chosen the vulnerable and the weak because they are vulnerable and weak to harm them and to use them. And these are the ones 
man, woe. Woe to you. And I think this phrase when he says, anyone who would cause people to sin, or anyone who causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, there's a cause there. This is a person that is targeting the vulnerable. And I think one of the reasons why we find the abuse of children, especially by religious institutions, especially by Christian institutions, so horrible and so heartbreaking is because this is the last place where a child should be attacked or hurt. Anytime we hear about sexual abuse or any kind of abuse within a church, it's heartbreaking. It doesn't matter if you're closely associated with that church or not. You know, I don't closely associate with, with, uh, with some of the churches where have, there's been just decades now of child abuse scandals, and you know what I'm talking about, but my heart breaks for it nonetheless. There's these stories of a, of a Catholic school in Canada that was working with the Native American population, and this just come out, hundreds, over a thousand bodies of children found that died in that school and were buried in unmarked graves. Mind-blowing to me that a Christian institution is a part of this. And it's not just the Catholic Church. One of my, when I was a young pastor, I was 29 when I became a pastor, and, you know, I was kind of naive. I was, I was really naive. And within the first two years of the church I was at, we had a serious case of child sexual abuse. It didn't happen to a child in the church, but it was a guy who was attending our church. And he had gotten in with this family and uh, had actually had led this family to Christ. They trusted and loved this guy because he had kind of brought them to a place of understanding the love of Jesus. He needed a place to stay. He was a younger guy. They let him stay, and he was molesting their daughters. He got 18 years in jail for that. But it was, for my life, when I was uh, that young pastor, it blew my mind. I had no idea how to deal with this. I, I was just like, what is going on here? Seminary didn't prepare me for this. You know, we had talked about it, but there's a big difference in talking about it and being confronted with, with this guy that I trusted who had actually bought plane tickets to Columbia because he was going to take these two girls on a mission trip. And his plan was to disappear with them. They were seven years old and four years old, the two girls. Crazy. So wrong. And I remember sitting across from this guy and talking to him about it, like he's in jail. So I'm like sitting, you know, that, that thing on TV where you sit between glass and you talk through the phones, it was that whole thing. And it was just, I was so over my head. I would be over my head even today, I think, even after all these years. But then I was like way over my head. And I was just struck by how matter-of-fact this guy was that this was all okay. He had justified it. He loved her and she loved him. She was seven years old. And it's these kind of abuses which a child is helpless to prevent. Physical abuse, emotional abuse. Frankly, this is why I'm pro-life. 
I think that a child is a child, and while they're in the womb, I, don't, I know that, that some women, maybe even here, have gone through and had an abortion. You had your reasons. I'm not saying this to be meh, 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 or hard on you because I wasn't in your shoes, but I have to say I find it difficult. This child is completely vulnerable, and they get killed. I find that hard to, to get my head around. Then Jesus goes on from there before making a quick reference to the fact that, you know, there's sin in the world and it's going to happen. Like I've already talked about this. Such things must come, but woe to the one through whom they come. You know, this is one of those ones you want to stop and go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Explain that there. It must happen. There's a must there and Germans are big with must. Must is a heavy word. You know, no, it is. You know, like, as, as American speakers, we throw around must, kind of like the way we throw around love. It's just kind of there. But it's a heavy word. You must do this. That's not a suggestion. It's going to come. It must come. There's a reason for it, but woe to the ones through whom it comes. I just kind of take that and go, whew. All right. It's a big, big question. You know, we want to say, well, God, if, 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 these, if woe to the person through whom they come, why don't you stop that person? Why don't you step in the way of some of these things? Because they must come for whatever reason. This is where the mystery of God, and I have my theological reasons, but my theological reasons make sense to me, but just like most of you, they can only make sense if I can just sort of shelve the faces of those who are suffering in the name of things must come. If I can just kind of take those faces of the children and say, or victims of war, or people who are just kind of, you know, in the, in the modern slave trade, which happens also, you know, with, especially, you know, in Europe, we have this prostitution that is basically slavery. And if you can just kind of take those broken faces and set them to the side, we can go, wow, theologically speaking, we are going through this period of development as a human being, and blah, 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 blah. But then you look at the face, and you're like, wow, my theology might have its logic behind it, but the emotion behind the logic, the person upon whose life is being crushed, it's heavy, isn't it? And oftentimes, we just choose not to think about it. And understandably, who wants to sit around and dwell on this all the time, right? But one reason why we pray for the persecuted church and things like that is because here in the West, we don't realize what other people are going through. Now, we have some people within our congregation who come from some of these countries, and they can say, I realize what they're going through. But a lot of us in the West, we have no idea. And if we saw the names and faces attached to these things, I think we'd react to things a little bit more passionately than just kind of sitting. That's why I wanted to have put names on the prayers today because it's easy to hear, yeah, we have a lot of stuff going on. And you kind of pray, Lord God, help the church. You know? That's honest, right? But you put a name on there and you know this is my sister. I see Priya's face when I pray for her because I see her. I see the grief. I see Boris's, you know, Boris has those you know, kind of these big happy eyes all the time with those glasses of his. You know, I see his face, you know, of my brother who is going through the hardest thing that I can imagine as a parent, which is 
the sickness of my child. You know, you just had a child, Marcus. Could you imagine? Yeah, it's horrible. The burden to bear. So Jesus then goes into this place. He says, if you're hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And there's no compromise in his words, is there? It is clear what he thinks about crimes against these innocents and these vulnerable. And what he does here. Uh, just to let you know, this, this is one of those places where Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He doesn't want us to go around maiming ourselves. But he is being harsh. And actually, in the early church, there are stories of people who did these very things. There's stories of folks, and they were like considered saints in the early church, you know, that they, well, my eyes caused me to lust. You know? No joke. They took this 100%. And what he's doing here, the Jews had this belief, and they still have to this day, the Orthodox, that in order to, to be resurrected, you see, the, Jew, the, the belief in physical resurrection comes out of Judaism. It's not just a Christian thing. It comes from this ancient source of belief of a physical resurrection, of which Jesus was the first. And in Judaism, and this is not something Jesus is necessarily advocating, but he's using language that they get they believe that unless you die with your body complete and intact, then when you're resurrected, you won't, you won't be complete and intact. And so if you were to lose an arm and your body was, was buried and your, then your bones get together, they put you in these ossuaries, bone boxes, when that resurrection would happen, you wouldn't have your arm. This is why, and this is kind of an aside, but this is why terrorism in Israel, why terrorists will very often use explosives when they attack people in Israel because the Orthodox believe this still. And so what worse thing can you do to an Orthodox Christian but blow his body to pieces all over the place? Because then when they're resurrected, they don't have their whole body together. And if you ever notice, if you ever watch footage after an explosion, there's always, in Israel, there's always some guy with a big beard and his yarmulke and then his, you know, his glow, his reflective vest poking around. And his job as an Orthodox is to find every single part of every single body to make sure they're buried whole. What a job, huh? So Jesus uses this imagery because this is already in people's minds. And he says, you know, it'd be better to go through eternity without an eye than to be going into the fires of hell. And it'd be better to go through eternity without an arm than to go into the fires of hell. Now, he's not saying that this is the case. And if you've like had an uncle or you know someone in life that died without a part of their body, you know, come on. God's bigger than that. But this was their thought, and he's using their language to get to them to understand the gravity of what he's talking about. That this is important. And it's not something that we just go, eh, you know, things happen. And then he brings, and again, this is one of those few times in Scripture where Jesus just bluntly says, you do this, you're involved in this, you're going to hell. And because... I've been a pastor long enough. I've run into this situation enough times in church. I just want to say to anyone listening or anyone here, if you're involved in doing something, child pornography, if you're involved in any kind of abuse towards a child that is systematic and planned, you are going to hell. And you better knock it off and repent. There's no two ways around it. There's no, well, I'm a good Christian, but I stumble in this place. Nope. 
If you are indulging in this place of using the vulnerable, you're going to hell. Then Jesus brings the conversation back around to the question about greatness. You know, this all started out with his disciples saying, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he, and he ends it with this. He goes, see to it you do not look down on one of these little ones. So, you know, they had no rights. People didn't really think that much about them. They were just kind of these little critters in the way and, and they were last to eat. I always found it interesting in some cultures that the, the, the children were the last to eat because I think in my mind it was always be, they'd be the first to eat. But no, in a lot of cultures they're the last to eat. Or they're the last to get anything to wear. He says, see, you don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So Jesus redefines this, defines this greatness again by recognizing their value. And then again, he has this little statement there that you wish you'd follow up on. What does this last part mean? Their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is the only place in Scripture that I can find that you really have any sense of this whole guardian angel idea. That somehow there is, an, uh, there is a connection to children that is God's special protection. And I don't know where it goes. You can't build a theology around one verse. But it's an intriguing verse. It's one of those ones you want to stop and say, whoa, 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 explain that part. But what I think Jesus, the point Jesus is trying to make is that the, the father is very closely concerned with the welfare of these children. He's very closely concerned. The, the, and, and the way Jesus explains, says it is, you know, they're angels. It's almost like, you know, angels sometimes have eyes that go around their head and all that. It's almost that picture. There's eyes on the child, and there's eyes on the father, and there's this direct concern that comes from God for them. That's my interpretation of it, anyways. You can interpret it however you want. This is not really a, a salvation issue. But I think Jesus is trying to make it clear to us that God finds this extraordinarily important. And so then for us, this is the kind of person he tells us we need to be if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to be that person that's willing to be vulnerable again. We need to be that person that's willing to have our eyes turn to God like a child will, will look to their parent who's a good parent and just say, whatever you need, wherever you go, I'm going to trust you. It's like the, it's, it's that attitude where if you ever go to the swimming pool and you see children just kind of leaping into the arms of their parent, you know, that, that trust that, yeah, dad's going to catch me, sure he is. It's that trust. I remember when I was a little kid and before you had to wear seatbelts all the time in the car, I remember my dad at night, my parents would be driving, they'd, they'd visited someone or whatever, and I'd be in the back seat. And I remember just like to close my eyes and sort of roll around and bang around the back seat. And it never crossed my mind that my dad would do anything that would cause me to be in any danger. It never crossed my mind that my dad could get into a car accident or that my dad would do something just stupid. It never crossed my mind. As a kid, there was complete trust to the point that I was, you know, kind of flopping around in the backseat of the car without a seatbelt, without a care in the world. That's trust. And when it talks about coming to Christ, I know some of you have had issues going on. Some of you, this sermon is particularly painful because you were the vulnerable. Maybe some of you, you were the ones that were systematically abused. I don't know. I don't know all your stories, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have that in your background. And it's hard to trust God sometimes when you've gone through that as a kid. And as parents, just know the way you raise your kids is going to help instill with them how they see God. It just, it just is. But if we can come back to that place of innocence again, if we can die to ourselves, die to all those 
things which have defined us, which are of sin, especially if you went through this terrible thing in your life, where maybe you were physically abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused, to know, to know in Christ that this is not how God sees you. He doesn't see you as this broken, damaged person. He sees you as someone who has been deeply affected by sin, so deeply affected by sin that he's willing to die to try and remove the effect of that sin in your life. And so he died on the cross, not just for your sins, but even for the sins of the people that did these things against you so that you can be free. You can trust God with the eyes of the innocent. You can be vulnerable to him and not be in a place of fear. You can go where he leads you and not wonder, does he really have the best for me? Because he does. And then in the process of that, we can rediscover what joy really means again. We can rediscover the true meaning of the word awesome. We can rediscover what it means to have unreserved trust and embrace God's life for you now and for your eternal life, where you will be in the presence of God, where there will be no more tears, and he will be dwelling with us and we with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the warning you give throughout your word when it comes to places of sin. And I'm thankful that you give us a very harsh warning when it comes to this area. Because even today, kids are vulnerable. Children are vulnerable. And unlike it used to be back in the past where it was vulnerable to, to people physically, they're also now vulnerable to people who would seek to abuse them online. There's so many places where the enemy seeks to prowl like a roaring lion to eat and destroy and to devour the young and the innocent. And may we as a church uh, pray, Lord, if there's anyone in our church that's involved in anything like this, God, that you will bring it to light and you will end it immediately. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us to guide, especially IBCD, as we are a church that have a lot of young families with kids, that you would uh, guide us in our responsibility toward these kids. May we do so. This is one of those times that I think we approach the Lord with some fear and trembling where we know that we are loved, but we also know that these young ones are held in high, high regard by you and that we need to also hold them in high regard no matter how irritating they can be, no matter how loud they can be, no matter how selfish they can be because that's just what it means to be a kid in a fallen world. And may we raise them up to learn to come to that place of eventual death to self so they can have their life in Christ and live lives with their eyes on Him, taking the lessons of love and hope that were taught to them and sharing it with their children and their grandchildren. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us while we were still sinners. Amen.